1: Hello everyone and welcome to Blogging Theology. Today I'm delighted to talk to Dr. Tanzine Doha. You're most welcome, sir. Thank you very much for having me. Asalaamu Alaikum. Waalaikum Asalaam. Good to see you, sir. Tanzine is uh, an anthropologist of Islam and secularism. He holds a PhD in anthropology from the University of California, Davis, with a designated emphasis in critical theory. Doha um, also has a graduate degrees in philosophy and humanities. His research explores the relationship between race and religion as categories of modern secularity, specifically looking at questions concerning blackness and Islam. His ethnographic work examines problems of betrayal, hypocrisy, false worship, disbelief, and other political and moral actions and psycho-existential conditions through an engagement with 20th century Islamist thought, His work can be found in the American Journal of Islam and Society, Political Theology, Journal of World Religions, and Reporting Islam Muslim Women in the New York Times, 1979 to 2011, and Care in a Time of Humanitarianism, Stories of Refuge, Aid and Repair in the Global South. Doha is the founder and general editor of the journal magazine Milestones, commentary on the Islamic world. He is also the founder and host of Everything is Fire, a podcast on crisis, catastrophe and tribulation, sponsored by the NALD Centre for International Studies at Cornell University. Now, in a peer-reviewed article, on anti-Islamism in feminism and secular media, you examine how feminism as a political and epistemic project necessarily, you say, requires anti-Islamism and incompatibility reinforced by media representation. So how did you come to this particular topic on feminism, media representation, secularism and Islam?
2: Thank you. Uh, thanks for having me, by the way. And uh, this is a wonderful opportunity to share. Uh, I'm glad to go back to this article, which was published in 2018. Hmm. Um, the article, the research around the article actually came about under uh, Professor Suad Joseph at University of California Davis. Um, I was researching with several others, uh, various articles um, in the New York Times uh, over Uh, that were published over three decades, in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. And during that research, I discovered that there was actually uh, a connection between the representations of Islam that was happening in sort of liberal media and academic trends um, of feminism, which also had a particular kind of criticism or particular kind of engagement with how they understood Islam or how they conceptualized Islam so the article basically has three operations on one hand it looks at um, a particular kind of periodization from 1979 till uh, 2011 and then it also looks at those three decades in which there are these shifts happening in the way new york times is uh interpreting islam and uh writing about islam
1: can can i just just pause you there the new york times is not just any old newspaper in america it's it's often seen as perhaps the most important uh, newspaper in the United States, and some have even said most important newspaper in the world, that, I think the London Times might disagree with that, but at least it's the most important newspaper in America. Is that how it's generally perceived?
2: Yeah, I mean, that's something that, you know, I highlight Noam Chomsky's uh, perspective in Manufacturing Consent, where he basically identifies the New York Times as like the mainstream, the main sort of voice of liberalism in terms of media. Um, And so it's really important. I thought it was uh, important to look at that in relation to more sophisticated conversations that were happening in feminist discourse and see if there is a connection in the way that they represent and understand Islam and Islamism in particular. That's another thing. It's not simply about Islam. It became about
1: Islamism. And
2: so I, I paid particular attention to that as well.
1: Right, so, that, so, you, you, so I'm, I'm, could you just clarify what you mean when you juxtapose or even contrast, I'm not sure, Islam and Islamism. Are, are these different ideologies completely? Or, or what, what is Islamism? I know what Islam is, I think, but what, what is Islamism?
2: Well, you know, there is a... Uh, I also kind of refuse um, the sort of sometimes the differentiation that's done in a simplistic way. Islamism is just basically... If you go with Salman Sayyid and others, and uh, including myself in some of my articulations, I suggest that it's a kind of political project, uh, an ethic, ethical political project, and a legal project that uh, emerged in response to the abolition of the of the caliphate. And uh, and so, 20th century Islam, when Muslims started to become politicized, a lot of those articulations were um, were considered the forms of Islamism, and so. Um, you know, there is, of course, the different ways that it was articulated, whether we're talking about the Iranian case or we're talking about uh, the, the Emir- Emirates and the way Islamism was articulated there and, you know, South Asia was a little bit different. And if you're looking at um, Hassan al-Banna and Sayyid Qutb and the Egyptian uprisings and how Islamism was articulated there, so it became a very relevant and important term for the worlds that Muslims inhabited and the political aspirations that Muslims had uh, in antagonism, it, antagonism it, and overlaps with the
1: nation state. Right, is this a term that Muslims themselves invented? So, or is this something that the West, Western political observers chose uh, and coined and applied it to politically aware, politically active Muslims in the rest of the world?
2: That's a good question but uh, you know there is a debate on this and uh, uh, some uh, some 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 of the Uh, some of the critics have said that it's not a term that comes from, that is mostly used by Westerners, but I actually find it to be, as an ethnographer, very, very used in the Muslim world. And uh, Islamist now is a very common term um, of designating a particular kind of project in which Islam is central and particularly is uh, legal and ethical dimensions.
1: Okay. So I mean, what do you mean by um, Islam is periodization, and why is it necessary for this analysis?
2: Yeah, that's a very important question. So I had to periodize those articles um, that I looked at in the New York Times, and I found out that, you know, generally when is political Islam is talked about, um, it is, and this is the Western problem, it's always talked about as a as sort of a consequence of larger global struggles, superpower struggles between the Soviets and the US and whatever's happening in the West. Um, So I thought it was important to look at what was happening in the Islamic world from its own perspective. So I looked at uh, 1979, for example, as a very important uh, year in the history of Islamism. There were two events which were really critical. One was the the Islamic revolution in Iran and the second was the Meccan siege that happened.
1: Uh, so, so, uh, so everyone's heard of the Iranian revolution. That's even in the news today, of course, because Iran's a constant sort yep. of problem in inverted commas for the West and for Israel. But the the Meccan siege um, has kind of been eclipsed by perhaps deliberately people were not wanting to mention. I mean, what can you just summarise briefly what actually happened in this incredibly momentous event that took place in in Saudi Arabia back in seventy nine.
2: Yeah, the empirical details are in the article, but I would say it was important. I mean, there were basically clerics, uh, Utebi, who basically, uh, there, was a, there was a movement to take over the Kaaba, suggesting that it was under the wrong hands. And they, it, I consider it an important moment because of the emergence of an internal critique from within, um, from within uh, the discourse of Islam at the time. So there was a tension. So the idea that Saudi Arabia or the leadership there is completely homogenous or the Wahhabis or the Salafis are completely uh, under the control, is uh, incorrect. So there is always, and uh, there was always a tension. And so without that 1979 moment in the Meccan siege, there wouldn't be many sort of Islamic networks that emerge later in the later decades, uh, showing that there are in fact. Uh, Wahhabis and Salafis who have been highly critical of the regime and who have been jailed and imprisoned. And this event actually was uh, demonstrating that kind of tension. So this kind of internal criticism, political criticism that Islam had uh, in, the, in, in Mecca and Medina it, is something that should be taken very seriously. And at the time, it wasn't taken as seriously. And uh, we know in retrospect that it was a very, very important event because in Sunni sort of Islamist and jihadist discourse, that moment was uh, really important and central. So it's a, it's a genealogy that we can look at by thinking about the global networks that have emerged in the later decades of Islamism. Mm.
1: And this is before al-Qaeda, before uh, bin Laden became what he became later on, of course. This is exactly, a- and
2: it's interesting because I think bin Laden also uh, at the time would have witnessed it. And, and, and that this is possible, that there was a and a possible kind of uh, rebellion happening within the Salafi discourse or Wahhabi discourse and so on, just part, part of the right. Sunni Islamist discourse.
1: Exactly. And then the second period, I think, is it 9 11 uh, onwards to a later date? Or the or second
2: periodization, I sort of look at the 90s. So, the 90s, that's right. yeah, that's the true. 90s, in which after. Uh, uh, the, the Soviets have been defeated. So we look at a unipolar world in, in which the U.S. looks at Islam as the main enemy now, not just uh, a problem uh, or something that they could support partially here and there, uh, but rather a, a, a major problem to deal with, uh, particularly in Afghanistan and other areas. So it became, um, so 90s was a more direct directly interventionist approach. So in, in media representations, so I should go back to that because there's a connection. In the 80s, much of the media representation looked at um, blamed sort of culture. So it separated is Islam as culture and religion. And this was happening in academic discourse as well. So it looked at the problems that the West didn't like, things about Islam that the West did not like. It looked at as cultural practices or cultural problems of this, that, and the other. In the 90s, feminism became much more directly interventionist about Islam. And so was U.S. imperialism. It was much more directly interventionist in its approach. So in the 90s, for example, if you look at some of the feminist uh, articulations about Islam and women, women's rights and so on, it's very, very clear that they're looking at Islam as the direct enemy at this point as a, uh, within the political field. Uh, and then I look at 2001 as the next rupture, which is basically because of 9-11 and how the war on terror uh, began as a particular kind of mechanism,
1: mm. and
2: how that impacted representations of um, of Islam. And there was now an interest, of course, the good Muslim, bad Muslim paradigm, but an interest to find Muslim voices who would uh, try to change Islam internally. So this was where feminism became more interested in finding sort of Muslim feminist interests. And uh, so the war on terror logic was more sophisticated and wanted to. Instead of being so direct in the feminist discourse, it looked, it looked at um, how could Islam have its own sort of feminist uh, uh, articulations. And so the West was more interested in that kind of approach. So this became also clear in the New York Times representations as well.
1: Yeah, there's some fascinating, I, I read your article, there's some fascinating examples of, of feminist discourse within Islam at that time saying that Islam talks about the equality of, of male and female men and women and kind of ignoring any other verses or and Hadith or Sira which tell a different story. So it was kind of, well, I think you, you at one point said it's rather selective um, reading of um, the, the evidence uh, to suit a particular feminist agenda, of course.
2: Quranic hermeneutics, for example, fem- Islamic feminism, uh, and it, the whole point is to basically suggest that the, the Quran is the main text of course and then trying to dismiss the entirety of the hadith scholarship or the for the most part and kind of diminishing the influence and the significance and the central role of the sharia and mm-hmm. uh and suggesting and so saying that basically hadith was produced by patriarchy and therefore it must be um so that's yeah. kind of became a dominant um, way of looking at uh, Islam from the perspective of hermeneutics and Quranic hermeneutics of which Islamic feminists participated in very
1: directly. There's one thing that struck me, I mean, just speaking my, my own opinion as, as someone who's not qualified, obviously, as you are, that for me, not all forms of patriarchy are bad. I mean, the, the assumption, the axiomatic uh, uh, dogmatic, uncriti- uh, uh, unlooked at, unexamined assumption is that patriarchy per se is a thing that is just evil and bad and, unex- and, and cannot be counted. But for me... There are different forms of patriarchy. The, the Qur'an has a form of patriarchy, I would argue. Mm. Islam does. It's there in Bukhari, Hadith, and so on, without going through all the evidence. Clearly, there are different roles for men and women, usually, and they're not identical. They're different, and they're complementary. And, you know, um, you know the man is the head of the household, for example, and so on. And so, and so I, I see this as a good thing, because it's the way the Creator has ordained that we as a species should live in harmony together uh, and so on but it seems to me that that this discourse that you're describing dismisses all that is as, as, as simply unthinkably wrong uh, and, yes. uh, and, and yeah. I, i'm always struck by how unexamined and un, how uncritically asserted that assumption is always and it's never looked at and i'm thinking can we can we look at this please critically and question this assumption please but it, it never seems to be done in this discourse i don't mean in your discourse i mean in the in the feminist or secular discourse that you have described so well in your article.
2: Yeah, and that is one of the, there's, the, there's a one assumption which is central, which is the assumption of autonomy of the subject yes. Uh, yes. or the radical subject of autonomy, yes. the sovereign, radically sovereign subject. And the understanding is that um, when you have an Islamic tradition in which uh, the subject is a servant of God, following mm-hmm. divine laws, and uh, is not actually autonomous, is supposed to follow divine laws, to understand divine powers, and is working uh, working his life according to uh, a particular sets of, of principles that he has to be obedient to, then you don't really have the same kind of autonomy or sovereignty. And that is uh, incommensurable with the assumptive logic of secular feminism or secularism more broadly.
1: Right. And There's a great quote here, if I may, as read from your um, article, which I think is a very eloquent uh, summation of what you've just said, and it really gets to the heart of the matter. And you write um, in the article, which I'll link to in the description below so people can read it for themselves, and you write, this incompatibility between modern feminism and Islamism arises from epistemic, conceptual, and material differences. Modern feminism's basis is the sovereignty of the radical subject, the subject of the Enlightenment, capital E. That's the, the period in European history, 17, 18th centuries. It assumes that European women as persons must have access to sovereignty, and therefore that any, for any form of submission to authorities that violate this sovereignty must be addressed as an inhibition for the ultimate freedom and autonomy of women. It is this subject and autonomy that is fundamentally contradictory to Islam's desire for subjects who are obedient to divine will, divine powers and divine laws, end quote. So you seem to be talking here of a fundamental incompatibility between feminism uh, uh, and Islamic orthodoxy.
2: Uh, fundamental, at the most elemental level, there is an incompatibility, um, and yeah, I—that's uh, my—that's my writing right
1: there, which you well, 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 I mean, although I think you—you're uh, absolutely spot on, and it's really great when I hear people say this because we need to look at the philosophical, metaphysical substructure of so much of discourse. We do in in the discourse of feminism, and secularism itself. People don't seem to mention this. It's almost like, well, Islam and and, and the West are—you know—we all believe in human rights. There's always the kind of surface alleged connections and compatibilities, but none of these fundamental incompatible um, paradigms that operate, which you have correctly highlighted, and I find that frustrating because we're, we're, they, these are incompatible worldviews, I would argue.
2: Yeah, I I, I would agree with you as well. Um, and you know my I, my focus though on this paper was less moral and more structural. Yeah. We wanted to show that there's a structurally feminism is anti-Islamist. It's not. It's not that I'm doing a moral assessment of feminism. I'm not really interested in it. I'm just but, showing.
1: But why? Well, you, you know. So in your article, you make this very point you just said, and I, I, I. I tick that in the oh right okay he's not making a moral point he's making a structural point Mm -hmm. but why did you choose to do that and not make a moral point because
2: um that's a good point because i think moral condemnation uh of feminism is already being done by many thinkers um including popular thinkers without showing a kind of structural genealogy of this incommensurability which is actually a deeper problem. So there could be many feminists, for example, who could have uh, political articulations that are interesting to some, to some anyone. And we could we could uh, think that it's there is a compatibility without looking at structural and epistemic incompatibility, which uh, which is at the at the at the root of the of the problem. So even if there is at the level of contingency various forms of feminist articulations that could be interesting to discuss or think through. Because there's a structural incompatibility, it's it's very difficult to keep um, a kind of feminist discourse and make it compatible with Islam. And I Mm -hmm. think the structural point is more forceful in articulating this incommensurability. Because if you're not looking at how ontologically there are different articulations at the level of even how man, human beings are conceptualized. What are their, what is, the, what is uh, nature? All of, those, all of those questions are foundational to have an Islamist opinion, perspective and sets of principles. Mm-hmm. And without that, uh, if you're only thinking about, okay, such and such feminist said such and such thing morally or politically, we're not really getting to the main, main issue which is the question of incommensurability and incompatibility and antagonism. So I want to go back to your earlier point uh, about, uh, about uh, anti-Islam and what I would call the de-essentialization of Islam. Uh, Islam is de-essentialized in much of uh, Islamic feminist and Quranic hermeneutic notions of feminism in which the Hadith literature and the Sharia are de and made less important intentionally and this is done in the name of women's rights etc and when you do that you said you basically de essentialize islam and what
1: do you mean by de sorry that that's uh, deessentialize islam what do you mean by that
2: because at the essence at the center of islam is the sharia to how to live how to have a life that's lawful from the perspective of islam and if the sharia is kind of decentered then we don't really have any serious
1: uh, Islam left anymore? Right. So, so that's a problem, isn't it? In our modern, in some modern discourse, uh you know, in our postmodern world, of course, the, the, the whole idea of essentialism or foundational understandings yeah. of reality is is seen as problematic. You know, we have no, no, we don't have anything that's essentially this or that. Everything is about interpretation and perspective and relativity of truth. But you are asserting contrary to all that there is actually an essence to Islam, and it's found in the Sharia. I think.
2: That's correct. I think, um, yeah, I think there is a legal. There's a-
1: modern categories in the name of Islam itself, and saying no, Islam is a thing. It has a form, it has a structure, it has a content, it has a, uh, has a philosophy, it has a, a worldview that is there, and it, it can't just be, um, you know, dismissed as a, a looking at the peripheral cultural manifestations, or whatever. So I think this is it's quite a refreshing reassertion of essentialism. There, I thought. Um,
2: yes. Um, and I would say that, you know, if someone is well-read in post-structuralism, then they would also uh, actually see the importance of theoretical form. So Islam has a theoretical form. It has it has flexibility. It has discursive limits. Every discourse has its discursive limits, what it can talk about, what it cannot. So it has all of those things. But because it has a theoretical form, that theoretical form has a has a legal, ethical, political structure. So it has... That so when one wants to actually decenter at the level of form, then we have a bigger problem than mm-hmm. simply moral disagreements, and that's why I'm interested in the structural question. It's mm-hmm. not about moral disagreements, and it's not about Islam having multiplicity. Even when Islam has internal multiplicity, it still has a kind of consistency about itself.
1: It kind of- a normative tradition, doesn't it? It's exactly. not like. A freewheeling, anyone can call themselves Muslim, has an opinion, that's part of the... No, no, no. There's a normative Sunni tradition, for example. Normative, orthodox, if uh, you want to use an- that term. Athari, They recognize boundaries and situations yes. and forms. So it's not a freewheeling, an- anarchic, anything goes well. Exactly, precisely. <laughs> and, and, and I don't think,
2: philosophically, that's inconsistent with you know, um, important theorizations by um, structuralist and post-structuralist thinkers. And I think I'm not necessarily, you know, uh, saying anything uh, that is too out there. It's really suggesting that Islam has its norms, like you're saying, and it has an orthodox structure. And one thing I'm doing in my paper is I'm not doing also, in Islamic studies, unfortunately, there's usually a very clear-cut separation between Islam and Islamism. And I try to not do that because I think there has been certain projects just like this project of trying to make feminism and Islam compatible. There has been projects of making political liberalism compatible with Islam. And there Islamism becomes the enemy of political liberalism, even at the level of discourse. And I want to actually uh, make sure I take care of that theoretically and show that actually secular liberalism also has this incommensurability. And yes. some of these projects in which Islamist Islamist sort of readings or histories are kind of uh, forcibly turned into compatible projects for liberalism, I think are deeply problematic.
1: Yes, and some recent scholarship um, has addressed that, that very point. Uh, and although you don't address it in your article, and, and uh, it's a different subject in a way, but this incompatibility you, you mentioned between feminism and Islamic orthodoxy can also apply to more recent um, LGBT trans that whole woke ideology, however you want to configure it, and Islamic orthodoxy, but not at the level of uh, well, should we get should this class of people have rights or not rights in American civil? I don't mean at that level. Yeah. I mean at a fundamental metaphysical level, which you've already articulated quite well, I think, in terms of the Enlightenment individual's autonomous subject and the the Islam's call to for the submission of the individual. To the divine and you have this same paradigmatic clash again in that discourse uh, as well so you, 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 your your discussion actually can be replicated in different contexts i think
2: i agree i agree with that i mean mobin vaid and others have written on these questions and um yeah i think um we could you know when i think about feminism as a discourse i also think about it as a discourse of intervention in which there has to be. Uh, so I'm interested in reading that discourse to understand what the in- incommensurabilities are. So that would require us to kind of engage. And yes, I mean all the questions concerning gender, sex, sexuality, etc. Um, mm-hmm. There would be uh, concerns about how uh, there is incommensurability between these two discourses, particularly when we have a concept of Islamic orthodoxy, which has a 14-year-old, 1400-year old tradition, which is very hard to kind of uh, selectively read parts that work for the liberal subject and parts that do not work, and to keep that tradition. So if you're interested in understanding that tradition in in an actual realistic way, then it would be important to understand its laws and legal restrictions.
1: Mm. I mean, Scott Kugel has done some, he's an American academic, I understand, uh, has, has, has tried to uh, reconcile th- those two in a book, but that's been roundly critiqued by people like Jonathan Brown and Moby Veid. Yeah. Uh, that's quite an obscure area of debate, but nevertheless, this debate has been going on. But even though you discuss the incompatibility between feminism and um, Islamic orthodoxy, you do discuss in your article, which, as I say, I've linked to below, uh, three examples in feminist discourse that you say are important for Muslims to know about. Can you take a- take us through that?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's very hard to uh, explain them um, um, in, in, in too, too much of a simplistic way, but I will try my best to kind of articulate it so it's beneficial. Mm-hmm. Um, so I identify three texts, uh, which I say they're exemplar. So I'm not saying that these three thinkers and their whole works are important. I, I don't know. It's... What I find is there's three essays by them, which are really important, and other essays that are like that, are, are in that domain, in that kind of discourse, would be useful for us to understand actually this incompatibility between um, feminism and Islamic orthodoxy. So the first text is uh, that I look at, I think it's by Sunera Thobani, her article, White Wars, which basically shows feminist... Um, uh, kind of engagement with the war on terror, uh, directly and indirectly. Uh, And in that particular text, however, Sunara does not go with the easy sort of Western feminist discourse. She looks at even sophisticated uh, um, feminism, which are considered sophisticated and post-structuralist, let's say, by Judith Butler, has a particular piece uh, where she kind of identifies um, a notion of the we, in which, in which victims of 9/11 and victims of U.S. aggression in Afghanistan, Iraq are looked at in the same exact way. And Tobani shows how that's not a very good assumption to make, um, and why. So that kind of uh, article, that kind of writing, where Tobani is actually um, deconstructing feminism and showing that within feminism, all the way from sort of right-wing feminism, left-wing. Feminism, post-structose feminism, there is a there is an assumptive logic, which is this disarticulation of, of, of Islam, and that is very, very important to keep. So I, I thought that article was very, very important. I like Sobani's work in that way. Um, the second um, piece that I highlighted as something that Muslims should take seriously is uh, an essay by Hortense Pillars, where she's talking about the history of um ungendering that happens through slavery, that was enforced through slavery on African subjects, um, and how that resulted in a particular kind of rupture in
1: modernity. This is American slavery, of course. This is American chattel slavery. and As as, uh, Jonathan Brown has pointed out in his book, uh, we can't generalize from the American experience, terribly though it was. It wasn't uh, typical of other... Experiences of similar phenomenon. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So, you know, in Spillers uh, in Spillers essay There is uh, an important kind of emphasis on what happens to these subjects And I suggest that in order to understand the modern uh, Moment we have to understand the history of anti-blackness very very seriously mm. and Islamism also requires an understanding because Islamism is often conceptualized as from within the history of uh, anti-colonial struggle mm-hmm. and uh, anti-imperialist struggle, but it's is not as highlighted as a struggle against uh, Western histories of slavery. So much of the slave revolts that happened in the so-called New World were organized by uh, by a history of jihad by the uh, by the slave rebels, and this is very very important to keep in mind. So I. I suggest that those kinds of texts are important to keep by those who are interested in the question of gender and how slavery impacted questions of gender and sex in specific ways.
1: No, what you mentioned is a really important point because a, a lot of the, uh, I, d- I don't know the numbers, but it was a vast number of uh, black slaves were actually Muslims. Uh, and th- th- these were Christian slave owners who purchased or kidnapped Muslims basically and turned and became uh, slaves in America. So it, it's, uh, I mean, this is a, not a trivial point, but a point not made by you in, in your paper, which has different ob- concerns. That the idea that Muslims coming to America is a recent thing because of migration yeah. and so on is completely baloney because Muslims were there even before America became independent from Britain um, in, in vast numbers. Living in what became the United States, but as slaves, as black slaves, owned by Christian masters who often refused to allow their black, their their Muslim slaves to practice their faith, so they had to do it in secret. There's a whole story there, which really hasn't impacted, as far as I can tell, the Western consciousness um, to any great degree, anyway.
2: Yeah, I mean, about one third of the slaves uh, were Muslim. Uh, and uh, so that's a very important and m- many of the rebellions were led by Muslims um, and um, there is cultural and historical reasons for that. Um, in, even the first uh, recorded uh, uh, slave revolt was by a Muslim um, and so there were many incidents of that and uh, it's very very important to see how um, that history plays itself out and how there is actually a kind of Islamist History, I would say, of retaliation against um, false worship because you'd have to worship the master instead of Allah. Okay, so there was a genuine kind of struggle against plantation owners. Yeah. Under the so, Islam,
1: sorry. Right, no, no. I, I was saying, well, one of the most frequently uh, cited texts uh, until the modern period, de Klerk uh, famously quoted it to Nelson Mandela, was from a Paul's letter to the Romans in the, in the New Testament documents about all authority is instituted by god and you you cannot rebel against authority because it is uh, instituted by god uh, and this is used to justify uh, apartheid but there are also numerous passages in the new testament not just by paul but other letters mm-hmm. which directly instruct slaves to obey their masters um, there's even one in uh, a pseudepicklefall letter uh, of peter uh one peter which says slaves must obey their masters even when they are cruel um, the idea of submission to cruelty uh, and, and to s- brutal slavery is actually a New Testament commandment. Mm-hmm. Uh, I say it's pseudepicofil because it's almost certainly a forged letter, according to biblical scholars anyway. So I'm not, well, I don't want to blame the Apostle Peter for that. But um, th- these texts were quoted, and I've, I've seen them quoted, uh, mm-hmm. in uh, Christian slave owners' um, uh, you know, injunctions to slaves to obey their masters. But, of course, Muslims have a different um, scripture.
2: Yes, and um, and you know it's, it's foundationally uh, wrong. So you know for Africans who came as Muslims, uh, who were Muslims for years and years, uh, mm-hmm. were enslaved, and um, so it's very important to see how that history emerged of struggle. So much mm-hmm. of uh, uh, much of black political history, in which there is a history of struggle. Uh, And some of the most radical ones were influenced by Islam. That's how you get figures like Malcolm X, for example, uh, who emerged as uh, a major figure in the Western Hemisphere for Islam. And I think um, this has a a basis which, for us to understand that, we would have to look at texts by folks like Spillers and to see what had happened at the level of uh, even gender
1: yeah, you mentioned the word struggle, obviously an English word. What's the equivalent in Arabic? So it would be jihad, yeah. So look this uh, uh, that's my point. Uh, there's, there's, it's ironic that in America, you could have had a noble tradition of jihad, called jihad, being recognised as a political reality. Today, of course, it's associated with uh, other terrorist events, 9-11 and so on. But it's a shame that it was not recognised as a noble Islamic concept, jihad, indigenous to the United States, or what became the United States, because it was all there. You mentioned a third of the slaves, you mentioned the slave revolt, there was Islamic and so on. So everything could have been, you know, configured in a very positive way, but it, it, that's that's not happened. Um, not yet anyway. Yeah. Um, and the, third, the third
2: text is a text uh, by Gayatri Spivak Can the Subaltern Speak, which is, which okay. I thought was very important because it basically deconstructs ideas of, you um, Western notions of modernization, ideas of tradition, and so on. And it kind of does a deconstructive work and looks at the subaltern as uh, as someone who... And the idea that subjects are already speaking subjects is a Western assumption. By speaking here, it means speaking a language that's legible within the civil society. So not like the, can the subaltern... Uh, speak words, but so sort of can the subaltern speak a language that is legible in, in sort of civil society discourse right? So that's I think that is a very important text because it shows again, the idea of the history of tradition. So if Islam is a discursive tradition, which it, as, you know as Tal al articulates on his founding text, then we have to think about how tradition is interpreted in the West um, and how it's understood and conceptualized and often against sort of modernity, specific ways. So it, something could be done to it in a specific manner.
0: Mm-hmm. So
2: I think that kind of text is really important to read as well. So again, mm-hmm. these are the exemplars. And then in my article, I move towards what I call a categorical uh, um, uh, analysis of feminism. So I separate generalized view to, cate- to generalization from categorization. So it's possible to look at feminism as a category and saying that as a category, it has this incommensurability with Islamic orthodoxy. Um, and I don't think there's anything wrong to say that, structurally speaking. Hmm. If someone wants to morally condemn that, that's a whole, that's a different conversation. And what, yeah. what do I think morally? That's a diff- I'm saying structurally, this is uh, this is an incompatibility. And so, and again, There has been, uh, within feminism actually, a critique of Western feminism. So constantly Mm -hmm. liberal feminists and Marxist feminists always try to suggest that look, Western feminism is a problem because it does this and that and the other, but there's this other stuff that is important, right? So I suggest that no, the problem is not Western Mm -hmm. feminism. The problem is that feminism itself as a category has an antagonistic and incompatible Relationship with Islam.
1: Now you talk about uh, the overlap between uh, these kind of academic feminisms and media representations, and you focus particularly, as as we've said, on the on the New York Times. But does the New York Times just just follow kind of the academic trends here, or, or does it have its own distinctive take on on uh, in articulating presumably kind of a more liberal feminist rather than a Marxist feminist kind of discourse uh, against Islam or Islamism?
2: Yeah, so, you know, the New York Times in their representations um, as, I, as I was saying earlier is more simplistic than the academic versions, right. but it, it surprisingly had very similar takes as uh, overall, the, the conclusions are very similar to how the academic feminist discourse, of course there are some shifts, it's not completely exactly what the academic feminists are saying, but the media discourse and feminist discourse have a similar kind of, there's a homology there. And so that's a very interesting, for me, when I when I discovered that, that there is actually a very serious similarity. Uh, I did add stuff. So, for example, New York Times, as liberal feminist discourse, would talk about Muslims through the idea of Western notion of rights and so on, ideas of property and so on. But, you know, Marxist feminism, for example, is not what New York Times does. So... I, no. I, I highlight uh, someone like Federici, who's a really significant figure in Marxist feminism. And even there, I show that she relies, she critiques sovereignty of liberalism. But she ah. says, however, the yeah. sovereignty that I am interested in, this is what she says, is, and I'm paraphrasing, is the sovereignty that's related to autonomy. So <laughs> again, both of those are actually ultimately based on Notions of autonomy, notions of agency, which uh, emerge out of a particular European history. So to force Islam to inherit that and to make that into a priority, I think is 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 always problematic. And
1: it's something you didn't explore in in your uh, essay, for obvious reasons, because it would take you. Way beyond the, the subject, but is the genealogy of the the this this subject this idea of of, of autonomy, which goes back to to Kant, uh, goes back to uh, uh, Stuart Mill later on, but uh, and John Locke uh, as well, um, and maybe others, I'm, I'm sure. But the, but these the, are all very kind of non-theological, non-metaphysical ideas of autonomy. It's kind of a, quite a secular feel to them, and and this seems to be part of just the like a fish in water, it's just part of the air, the water we swim in, it's yeah. seen as axiomatic, and natural, and so on. but you're saying, and I think rightly, and others have pointed this out too, it's not at all natural, it's the product of a of a series of ideological and philosophical movements that have yeah. a clear genealogy that we can trace back that is, uh, that is geographically regional to a particular part of the world, to Europe, and thus to America uh, uh, after that, it's not indigenous to Africa or South America or, or, or the Islamic world or China or anything, and, it, and yet it, it assumes, this is what always, it always amazes me, it assumes a universality about it, as if it's just like laws of physics are just everywhere. <laughs> but it's not. It's very particular, but it has this hubris built into it that, no, we, are, we know best we europeans we americans and the whole world must be like us or you're backward you're or you're muslim or islamist or radical or subversive dangerous whatever and it's this kind of background ideology which again this is the deep structure that you you allude to that's correct and that that's
2: that's what i suggest and there's a very long history the history of autonomy that's a whole genealogy like you're saying Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting that Federici kind of relies on autonomy and self-determination. Mm-hmm. So all of these thinking um, is connected to a history of the state and history of, mm-hmm. um, of the modern state. And, um, and so that's, that's deeply problematic as well because it's, you know, normative Islam is much more flexible about that question of what to do with the state. And I look at Islamism also has a very interesting kind of flexible history of its relationship to the state and as well as its understanding of anti-state as understanding of colonialism. So Islamism changes its character depending on historical urgencies uh, and particular situations, right? Islamism in Palestine is going to look very different from Islamism in Afghanistan. It's going to look very different uh, from Islamism in Turkey. So these are things that we have to be um very careful about and you know i'm an anthropologist
1: so i pay attention to those kinds of historical and, and that nuance that you brought in in u.s is something i really appreciate i hadn't quite grasped before that as, as you say what you call islamism in, in palestine afghanistan turkey wherever mm-hmm. is different it's not like uh the kind of the western trope of islamism just exactly. happening here, there and everywhere no there, there are very particular circumstances obviously palestinians are under military occupation and the Afghan I mean, we can go through the different scenarios, but these that's are very different and often different kind of political philosophies, kind of
2: uh, that's correct. Are, however, however, uh, it's not up in the air. It's no. kind of has to follow the discursive tradition of Islam, mm-hmm. has to be within that discursive tradition, there is a particular notion of orthodoxy. Those things have to be there for it to be Islamism. And okay. for it to be even Islam, so uh, there is no way out of that question. Mm. That's why uh, this concern about
1: incompatibility and incommensurability is so important. Mm. I mean can I just push back against this term, but Islamism. What one could say, and you're not saying this, but what one might say, well, the Prophet Muhammad, upon whom be peace, after the Hijra in Medina, he built a proto-Islamic polity. I'm not going to call it a state because that has connotations of whatever. Sure. Polity, governance, rulership, whatever. So he was like the the head of state, if I can use that word. There was an army. There was a constitution, the constitution of Medina, which apparently really, really happened. So there was a was a political polity. By the logic of this language of Islamism, one would say that Muhammad was an Islamist. Now, no, you wouldn't say. I, I mean, we wouldn't use that language, obviously. I wouldn't. I no, would what I'm not suggesting you would, but why wouldn't one use that language given the logic of this, which is not my logic, I'm just I'm just trying to be descriptive here, descriptive yeah. of the, the, the language that's used of Islamism, why couldn't it also apply to the Prophet Muhammad upon whom be peace, given that he was a very political actor, I mean he had treaties with people, yeah. he engaged in jihad, he did this, you know, he wasn't just a, a private yeah. person who just had prophes- uh, prophetic utterances, he was a political actor on the world stage. Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
2: Very good point and very important point. Um, Islamism is a term that I would use for 20th century onwards for various political mobilizations in the aftermath of the abolition of the caliphate, that there was an urgency to uh, the Islamic revival took place. And uh, Islamayun as a term that came up in Egyptian, pre- uh, Egyptian prisons against Nasser. And right. it, the idea was Everybody, you know, particularly in Muslim societies, there are many Muslims and many Muslims are serious, but are they serious enough to make it a political project? And that's what separated them from other Muslims. And so this is actually why I refuse the idea that Islamism is simply an Orientalist term. It's not. It's a term that came up from Muslims themselves to identify the urgency, political and legal and ethical urgency, to construct a society against sort of a Nasserite domination of the nation state and so on. Uh, mm-hmm. And so this is very, very important. And I think where a lot of the times, unconsciously, when Muslims um, find Islamism to be a problem, problematic term or continuously trying to say that it's just an Orientalist reproduction, they actually have their own anxiety about the term. They have their own anxiety of what it means in the Western sort of discourse as uh, and so they have their own internal uh, questions about it so uh, and that anxiety has something to do with I'm not going to call them directly anti-islamist that anxiety is the libidinal economy of anti-islamism that is the mm-hmm. at the level of their desire at the level of their anxiety at the level of their affect there is this there is this um uh, uh, um, a kind of worry a concern and I think that is also itself the product of anti-Islamist discourse in sort of liberal um, imagination, even when the people are not claiming to be liberal and I think this yeah. is uh, another issue the Prophet of course was from an earlier time much pre-modern era, we're not talking about Islamism there, we're talking about Islamism, at the level of what happened under particular kind of colonial history, particular kind of history of the abolition of the Khilafah, and then what happened afterwards in... So it's a historical term in that sense. It's not...
1: The way you're using it is not pejorative, it's not negative, it's descriptive. You clearly defined it as a post-abolition of caliphate political activism, if I can rephrase what you're saying. But, uh, and this is the sting, surely, when it's used in the West, when it's used in France here or in England or America, As far as I can see, uh, at least I could be wrong. Very often, it's used in a negative sense. It's often synonymous in some discourse with terrorism, actually, with violence, with a a, a very kind of negative understanding of jihad and so on. And so, it's not a neutral term. I I mean, it might be used neutrally by some academics, but but (laughs) more often than not, I would think it's seen, particularly by Western policymakers, as a problem that needs to be confronted or part of the world. I say.
2: I'll I'll take one step, I'll take a step further and say yeah. not just Westerners, right. the secular yeah. observers and good Muslims, according to Mamdani, the Muslims that the seculars like. <laughs> these Muslims and Westerners and the secularists, when they think of when they describe Islamism negatively, mm. they're actually describing Islam negatively. They want to call it Islamism so Muslims are not offended. But they're really talking about Islam.
1: Exactly.
2: They're talking about Islam and they're talking about those kinds of Muslim figures who, for whatever reason, and again, this is a structural statement by me. I want to be very, very careful, not a moral one. Mm -hmm. They're very upset with islamic resistance in various parts of the world against specific kinds of interventions and whenever muslims engage in resistance they want to u- use specific terms to kind of delegitimize it to, to the them. minds of secular observers including yes. muslim so exactly. then muslims have this anxiety about their own tradition And they want to separate themselves from the Islamists by saying, oh, no, no, those are the the crazy Islamists. I'm just a Muslim following the Sharia and I'm just following. But, you know, it's an imperative to think about a particular kind of political governance, Hmm. not just simply personal practices of Islam. And when you engage in that imperative, in that imagination, you've entered a world of Islamism to an extent. Even when you're providing other kinds of uh, conceptualizations of what, what this kinds of yeah. aspiration should look like and that kind of debate and contestation, of course, is there. But mm-hmm. I think this is a very serious kind of anxiety that Muslims themselves have.
1: Yeah, and the, the language, uh, I mean, my understanding as a non-scholar of normative Sunni, is, uh, Sunni Islam is the obligation to have a, a caliphate, a, a, an imam, yeah. a single leader of the Muslims. Uh, now, obviously, we don't have that, but, mm-hmm. but nevertheless, the obligation, it would seem to me, uh, looking at some of the major things, would be al ghazali or Ibn Taymiyyah, all of them seem to, seem to be Ijma on this issue, no yes. matter who they are, really. Um, but that very language today, if I was to express this uh, as a political mm-hmm. project today, would be slapped on as Islamist immediately. Happen. Even though I would be consciously drawing on mainstream normative Sunni Islamic tradition from the great like Al Ghazali. Now, Al Ghazali is not not seen as problematic by Westerners like Ibn Taymiyyah is, and yet they're both in agreement on this uh, necessity to have a caliph. So it it seems that we're setting ourselves up for an issue here in using this language.
2: Yeah, and I would say that much of Islamism, not all, much if, as long as something is called Islamism by Muslims themselves, it generally is from within the discursive tradition of Islam. Mm-hmm. It could try to kind of stretch some of the borders to an extent, and there is a debate around it among scholars, but it's been very difficult to call Islamists, for example, non-Muslim, even by the consensus of the Sunnis. It would be very difficult to do that, I would say, no matter h- what, how massive the uh, disagreements are.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. And
2: I suggest that Islamists themselves have disagreements among themselves, mm-hmm. depending on yes. their orientation.
1: Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah I mean, we have a, a project uh, called the UMATICS, uh, 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 um, Overmere, I forget, he's uh, Professor Overmere. Professor Overmere, um, yes, Overmere Andrew, uh, this, um, is an American uh, professor. Um, has has initiated or organized this project, Umatics, which is political thought about Islamic governance, not in any kind of sloganistic or Islamist way, uh, to use that word, uh, but in a much more nuanced and sophisticated way. And this language, this discourse is now entering, hopefully, into uh, the mainstream again, but in a quite new and refreshing way, I think.
2: I agree. I mean, I, I think those kinds of... Um thinking that's happening in the in the Muslim world and Mm -hmm. and among Muslims is really important Um, regardless of agreements and disagreements about specific things within that kind of discourse. I think it's really important to have that kind of space to have conversations about what the the, an Islamic society should look like or Islamic system of governance should look like and how to deal with the question of modernity because we're living in it and uh, How to deal with the questions
1: of the secular, and I think that's really significant. And Um, nation states, because we've been queued these nation, these these statelets or small nation states by our colonial, former colonial masters. And you know, is this how we want to live, divided up into fifty different statelets, or do we want a a different conception of the umatic polity? Um, Sure.
2: sure.
1: Yeah. Okay. Um, Well, my last question, really, I mean, a couple of questions how was your, um, your article received by the, the wider academic community? What, 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 do people engage with it positively?
2: Um, for the most part, I think, I mean, I published this a long time ago, so thanks for <laughs> discussing it again. I had to go back to it and, you know, I'll probably write certain things a little bit differently if I were to write it now, but yeah, in 2018, I think it was one of the most read papers I've written and, um, and it's a uh, more serious than sort of slogans that we hear against uh, sort of feminism that are too conventional and simplistic. So I think uh, there's been quite a bit of response, particularly from the Muslim world. People have been interested in in reading it. In the academy, it was accepted. So I don't. And I think um, recently it came out as a chapter in a in, in a in a book that was edited by Sohail Joseph. Um, and you know the reviews are pretty good so i think overall it was considered pretty serious uh, i'm sure it it is disliked by those who are kind of uh, ideologically uh, not thinking about the limits of feminism and are you know yeah. making assumptions without knowing that they're making assumptions they like you were saying it's kind of naturalizing if feminism becomes almost like a naturalized phenomena to take certain positions, then you would you wouldn't like this article at all. But otherwise, I think it's a, it's an important
1: kind of conversation starter. Right. Yeah, and I think that's why I recommend people read it because it, it gets one thinking outside of the the given box that one is told to think about these matters in in our Western uh, context. Um, so, as I say, I, I I've linked to uh, the article in the academia uh, page um in the description below It's but it's also a chapter in a book uh, in a separate publication uh as as you mentioned um so as we conclude it would like to summarize um what would be a um a takeaway from your article for for listeners and potential readers of your article do you think
2: I think the the main um, one of the main points because some of these points are made by many others i don't I don't think I did like some big intervention. I kind of brought together various forms of uh, readings together. but I think the main idea is to suggest that there is a relationship between the secular and anti-islam and anti-islamism and that islam anti-islamism is not simply communal racial hatred. It is actually a libidinal, uh, ontological, epistemic, material structure. And that part of it is, I think, the takeaway. Um, Not to think of Islamophobia in the conventional sense that, oh, you know, I'm going somewhere, someone calls out a name or something. You know, some kind of basic bigotry is bigger than that. The anxiety that the secular um, society feels towards Islam is a very deep anxiety. And mm-hmm. in order to trace that, one would have to look at the history or genealogy of anti-Islamism and how secularism actually has within it, is the essence of secularism is actually anti-Islam. And that's mm-hmm. basically uh, what I would suggest, that actually secularism has this direct confrontation with Islam, and this is, hidden somewhere most of the time Uh, but it is the main essence of it
1: yes and without reigniting the whole discussion again which wasn't my intention but um i think a difference why islam and not christianity not judaism because i would say this is my personal opinion is that christianity for example is largely secularized it accepts the western liberal secular paradigm as normative uh, for itself, whereas Islam hasn't really submitted to that. Um, it still retains its, its integrity um, as, as a faith, unlike those other Abrahamic religions, which seem to have found a very comfortable niche within the Western paradigm, a secular, liberal, morally autonomous paradigm. Islam hasn't, and so that's why it's seen as a problem but, and that's why it's required to submit not to God but to the Western zeitgeist. And of course, uh, I, I suspect that the vast majority 99% of Muslims are not going to be doing that anytime soon.
2: Yes, and um, Islam refuses to be religion in the modern sense, which yeah. is something that you practice privately. It wants to be a public discourse, it wants to be the discourse which organizes society. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That is in confrontation with secularity, which wants to organize society as well and wants to put religion sort of in the closet for the most part. And you know, Gil Anajar, the thinker, says something very interesting. He's, he, he says that secularism is the name Christianity gives itself when it invents religion. <laughs> so I think Islam refuses to be religion. Yeah. Islam wants to be a world making, a historical project in Mm -hmm. which it wants to articulate that this is the best way to organize, not just Muslim societies, the world Mm -hmm. and this is the best way to organize humankind. And I think that is not really (laughs) is compatible with secular interests and the way it imagines the world.
1: If if any liberal secular viewers find that language alarming, they must, I think, suggest that exactly the same aspirations to global hegemony are also found within liberalism. Because yeah. liberalism, with its language of rights and secularity and secular democracy, also aspires to be a global, total end of history. Maybe this That's is a correct. language of the end of history. It means the complete hegemony of a certain Western liberal secular discourse. That's correct. So these are counterpart uh, ideologies, both with global um, hegemonic aspirations. That's uh, mm. yeah. amazing. All right. Well, um, that's absolutely fascinating. Thank you very much, uh, Tanzine, for your time uh, and uh, and all the work you put in. And um, very, very interesting indeed. And uh, um, thank you. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Very much. Until next time. Thank you. Salam alaykum. Wa alikum